we hear a lot about renewable energy, renewable energy, but we still also have to look a bit to the reality in the eyes, because right now in the world, only 18.18% of the world's energy is produced by renewables. That's not so much. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Ina Braverman, the founder of EcoWave Power. Ina founded EcoWave Power, or EWP, at the age of 24. Under her leadership, the company has installed the first grid-connected wave energy array in Gibraltar. Ina was recognized by Wired Magazine as one of the females changing the world, and by Fast Company as one of the world's most creative business people in 2020. She's a winner of the United Nations Global Climate Action Award, and for her, clean electricity is a very personal journey. She was born two weeks before the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, and she suffered respiratory arrest due to the pollution in the region. Luckily for her, as she gets into, her mother was a nurse and gave her a second chance at life. Ina and I discuss how she used her second chance in life, along with a happenstance meeting with an investor who is also obsessed with wave power to found EcoWave Power. We get into how EcoWave Power's technology works, the difference between onshore and offshore wave or ocean energy, and the policy needed in order to scale the technology. Super excited to jump into the episode. Before we get there, if you like what we do, please consider supporting our work by giving us a rating on Apple Podcast, following us on Spotify, and checking out our socials at The Net Zero Life. We're about to jump into the interview with Ina, but before we get there, I want to talk to you about Climate People. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon, or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions too. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ina Braverman, founder of EcoWave Power. Ina, thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm super excited to have you. I'm very excited to be here. I think we're going to talk about this theme a lot, which is kind of this untraditional path from A to B. And I'd love to start with just a short history of your life, going from where you were born and then moving to Israel and then starting EcoWave Power. So uh, I I was born in Ukraine, basically back then was the USSR, uh, on the 11th of April in 1986. And uh, two weeks after I was born, the Chernobyl nuclear reactor exploded which was the worst in history and nuclear disaster in terms of costs and casualties. And uh, unfortunately, I was one of the babies that suffered from the negative effects of the explosion. I actually had a respiratory arrest and a clinical death. And uh, luckily my mother, uh, who is a nurse, approached my crib on time and gave me a mouth to mouth resuscitation, which saved my life until the ambulance came. So I really grew up with the feeling kind of like I don't remember anything from this story of course I was a baby but like my dad and my mom they kept talking about it like it's not very usual thing when you get a second chance in life so I said okay if I already got it I should do something really really special with it and when I was four years old our family immigrated from Ukraine to Israel and we settled in a small town in Israel in the north of Israel it's called Akko and um, you know 
it was pretty boring back then. Like we made Aliyah or immigrated during the 90s. So there was really nothing to do. There was no shopping mall. There was no cinema. There was really no attraction for children. So most of our time was spent on the beach. You know, it's a coastal city. So at least we had the beauty and the fun of the beach. And uh, as I grew up, I went to study in Haifa University. I studied uh, political science and English language and literature. And uh, why I chose politics, because uh, my younger self believed that uh, the best way to really do something positive for the world and have a positive influence on the world is through uh, politics. Because, you know, if you're a good and kind-hearted and uh, politician that means well, then you can definitely do something good for the world. Uh, but then, actually, you know, life has had its own course. And um, when I finished the university, there was no lineup of politicians looking to hire, a, you know, a fresh major from university. And then I went to work as a Hebrew-English translator at a renewable energy company. And that's kind of how I, you know, got introduced to the renewable energy field initially. Were you already interested in renewable energy or was it was just a job that you're like, oh, I could do this? Listen, growing up in Apple, um, especially like in its early days, um, there wasn't like options. There weren't like phrases like startups or renewable energy or innovation. Like that's not what the kids and adults in this type of town were uh, focused on, right? So no, I, I could never develop my passion and especially wave energy, which is a completely type, a completely new type of renewable energy. Like I never heard about it, you know, I spent a lot of time on the, beach, on the beach, but like, I couldn't really like think about, oh, maybe I have a chance to do a startup. Like I wasn't uh, coming from a family with money. I didn't have the right connections. I didn't have technological background or expertise. So it's not like I could even dream about one day, you know, becoming a CEO or a founder of a renewable energy company. So definitely not. It kind of happened by mistake. Uh, I worked in, as I said, in a renewable energy company for like almost a year or a year as an English Hebrew translator. And uh, the company wasn't my cup of tea. So uh, I stopped working there. But uh, there I did discover that there's different types of renewable energy, which is something I didn't know before. There is wind and solar and wave energy. And whereas already back then in my 20s, early 20s, uh, solar energy and wind energy were industries that were packed with competition. You know, everybody were fighting for the same like quotas of production of electricity. And there was not too much to improve in the technology because like, you know, the base technology was already there. Wave energy was something that everybody really wanted. There was a huge demand and no supply. Like no matter how much money was invested and no matter which big companies came into the sector, like there was no real success of commercialization. And that's what kind of drew me to the field because, you know, I said to myself, I have no money, no connection, no technical expertise. I'm the perfect person to build a wave energy power station. <laughs> I guess it's an innocence, innocence that you can have only in your early 20s. And like I started really researching the field and like seeing like, okay, what other companies did? Where did they fail? Like what happened? And I found out that there were like four or five elements where all the companies failed. So I started thinking like, what can I do otherwise, you know, to make sure that wave energy does commercialize. So I got my ideas, but really like, I had nothing to do with these ideas. 
was like, to be honest, to build a power station costs money. Even to write the button costs money, you know, even before the power station comes. So I couldn't really do anything about it. And one day I went to a social event in Artelia and uh, there, got, there was a guy that came and sat next to me, like that I didn't know who he was. He was like wearing ripped jeans and you know, a lot of these string bracelets on his hands. So he looked like a bit like Shanti. <laughs> And then he told me, like, what's your passion? And right away I told him wave energy because I was in the midst of researching it and like being super like excited about it. And it turned out that this guy is a serial entrepreneur that made a number of uh, successful exits in the past. His name is David Lab. And uh, with the money made from the exits, he was investing a lot in real estate. And one of his real estate was a surf hotel in Panama called Rancho Estero. So he was sitting there on the coastline during the renovation of this surf a hotel and thinking wow there's probably something that you can do this way rather than like marine sports and also like he got obsessed with it and started like researching and thinking like how can we do wave power and it was so rare like it wasn't like a regular topic uh, that two people can have in common so it was so rare for him that i told him this is my passion but this was kind of like a a business match made in heaven you know like wow it's your passion and my passion like what are the chances and that was kind of the beginning of EcoWave Power. And what year was that? Uh, 2011. 2011. So now we're 10 years past. What yeah. has changed for EcoWave Power in those 10 years? Wow, a lot. So uh, first of all, uh, we were able to build our first grid-connected power station. Uh, which is working in Gibraltar since 2016. We're now in construction of our second grid-connected power station, which will be here in Israel in uh, collaboration and co-financing from the Israeli Energy Ministry and EDF Renewables IL, subsidiary of the French National Electrical Company. Um, we, we went public twice. In 2019, we went public on Nasdaq Stockholm and became the first Israeli company to ever uh, list on the, on the Swedish Stock Exchange. And just a month ago, on the 1st of uh, July, we uplisted the company to NASDAQ US, which was super, uh, of course, exciting and important moment for us. Uh, we were able to accumulate a significant project pipeline of over 300 megawatts. We've registered uh, have patents and patent spending of more than 17 patents. So like, wow, like it was one hell of a journey. And, uh, but my feeling internally that like, uh, we still have a huge part of the journey in front of us. Like we didn't reach the most exciting part yet. Like we did a lot, but we still have a lot ahead of us. Do you still feel that excitement that you had when you spoke to David about EcoWave when talking about, um, or about wave power? Of course, can't you see from our discussion? No, I love it. I just, it's amazing. I mean, 10 years time to do something for 10 years and then to continue to have passion and drive is I think how people change the world. Listen, it's, I always say like the key, the key to success is passion and persistence, right? You have to be really passionate about it. And even if something is going wrong and all the time something is going wrong, right? Every day something bad happens to us. Like if it's small, if it's big, like, but to keep like, you believe in it, like just go with your heart, go with your mind, go with your desires, right? Don't give up. Because like if you stay like, you know, stay with your passion long enough. I think one passion is contagious. Other people want in, in, in your passion. And two, like, I don't know if like there's 
some future entrepreneurs that will be listening to the podcast, remember that there are billions of people in the world. And in order to have your initial steps, you only need one to believe in you. Like how encouraging is that? It's an exciting thing when you learn that like you can push the universe and it kind of pushes back uh, and actually like changes the world just a little bit. I'm curious, did, you know, we're going to jump into EcoWave Power's technology and kind of their journey as well. But one thing I'm curious about, so 2011, climate change wasn't the same discussion it is today, right? Um, 10 years ago, how much of the, like the conversation and the drive for companies and the world to move to net zero emissions, how much has that lifted up EcoWave Power uh, in like, you know, the past few years or how has the narrative changed throughout your business? Is it, was it originally like, we are going to like, make you money and now it's hey we're going to help save the world uh, it was always a combination of both because uh, we always believe that uh, impact uh, technology impact investment renewable energies are very important but in the end of the day it also has to make sense financially right because you can come up with the best like invention but let's say i don't know you can provide the i don't know 100 houses with electricity and it would cost them one billion dollars like you know, it would be a bit weird. So we always try to kind of be very realistic and develop a commercially viable product while also maintaining that we're, we're doing it for a greater cause, you know, to do something for the world. So I think in any, in any sort of business, uh, no matter how impactful, we also need to pay attention that we are like following certain market expectation or market standards. Uh, and how did it change? Like, yes, I agree. Uh, renewable energies were much, much less on the agenda than they are now. But maybe kind of for us, you know, the growth in awareness happened in a good time because remember that the first years of the company were mostly R&D and developing the product because we didn't have the same technology readiness as we have now. So maybe actually when we felt the most comfortable in our technology and then the market demand started coming. Maybe it was kind of a good timing for us accidentally, but uh, that's kind of what happened. But even that really we can see now like every you know, media outlet, like TV, radio, podcast, everything that um, we listen to, we hear a lot about renewable energy, renewable energy, but we still also have to look a bit to the reality in the eyes. Because right now in the world, only 18.18% of the world's energy is produced by renewables. That's not so much. Yeah. And then of that, how much of that energy is wave power? Very, very little. Wave energy is just in its uh, initial uh, steps of commercialization. Most of the world renewable right now is like the new capacities that are being installed is solar and wind because they also started their commercialization much earlier. So right now, very, very small uh, amount of it is uh, uh, wave energy or ocean energy, which is like the the bigger term for this. Um, But it also has a bright side. It's saying, listen, right now we occupy this little, you know, dot in the world's uh, energy needs. But like, according to the World Energy Council, wave energy can produce twice the amount of electricity than the world is producing. So think of the growth potential that we have. So that makes you feel a bit better. <laughs> totally. And I read um, as part of my research that like in the U.S. alone, like they there's like 64% of our energy could come from or electricity demand could come from wave energy as well. Uh, and that's just off like the coast of certain areas too. 
for people who've never either thought about wave energy or wave power, how do you describe, how does the technology work and how do you like simply describe, this is how we take energy from waves and turn it into electricity into your home? So basically, uh, it's very important for us not to create a new presence in the ocean environment or on the ocean floor. So we connect floaters to existent man-made structures, such as piers, breakwaters, jetties, and other types of structures. We connect it on the external side, so it doesn't also ruin the view of the people from the inside. And basically, basically these floaters are going up and down with the movement of the waves. They're pushing a hydrocylinder, which transmits biodegradable fluid into land-located accumulators. A pressure is being built. The higher the wave, the higher the pressure, which is used to turn the hydromotor, turning the generator, and sending clean electricity to the grid via an inverter. And the whole system is controlled by smart uh, automation, automation and control system. So when the waves are too high for the system to handle, the floaters automatically lift above the water level, and they stay in the upward position until the storm passes. When the storm passes, the floaters commence operation. So that, that's that's the most simple. <laughs> yeah, I think for maybe for people who aren't listening, maybe, like, tell me if this is wrong, but it's kind of like the wave is pedaling a bicycle, right? Not exactly, right? But that bicycle and that wheel drives a generator and that kind of makes electricity. Yeah, it, it, it's mechanical energy in the floater. It's mechanical energy transformed into like circular energy or, or pressure, which is the hydraulics and trans- transformed into electricity in the end. Yeah. You um you talked about the storms. Was there like a lesson learned one time where you learned that you needed to have that technology to lift the um, to lift the buoys out of the water? So we really didn't need a lesson. We understood that the powers of the sea or the oceans they're very very strong. And like wind turbines, when the wind is blowing too strong, the wind turbines they do the same thing. They lock down. They don't lift because they're not in the water, but they do lock down and stop turning. So we did understand from the start, uh, given the fact that one of the major problems of the wave energy industry for commercialization was breakability, like a lot of like big power stations just simply sunk in the water. So we knew from the start that we need uh, to have the storm protection mechanism. That wasn't like a novelty that we learned from experience. However, we did improve different uh, elements in the storm protection mechanism to make sure that it can really withstand storms. For example, in the beginning, when we were lifting the floaters and locking them down, we didn't take into account necessarily that there are, even if the water doesn't touch the floaters because they're above the water level, uh, the wind is very strong. So the floater is acting against the wind. So it's moving it. And what happens when a floater that is weighing a few tons starts to, to move, it's hitting its own connections and then going back into the water, which is not exactly the best uh, storm protection mechanism. So we improved the locking mechanism to make sure that the connection between the locking mechanism and the floater itself does not enable any movement, like it's robust, it doesn't move. So then you have static loads acting more than dynamic loads, and then it prevented the the floater going back into the water uh, undesired. So of course, we're learning a lot, and we will keep learning a lot because it's a new industry, and our goal is keep upgrading and updating our product to have it like the best possible, you know? What was harder in terms of like technology development? Was it the mechanical side of getting the wave energy to electricity or was it the like smart grid software piece that like told the floaters what to do and then like how to turn them on and off? I don't think in general that our technology is difficult. We kind of kept it with the principle of simple hardware, smart software. 
so like hydraulic is something that is used in forklifts and in elevators, like it's nothing that is out of the ordinary. We can use a lot of off-the-shelf parts. Uh, all our electrical parts from the generator to the grid connections, uh, we usually use Siemens parts, uh, which are reliable and of course easy to get. Uh, so I don't think that the technology at its core is complicated. I think there are other like external factors that made uh, the development and commercialization of wave energy in general uh, harder than maybe other uh, technologies. First of all, really the fact that for more than 100 years, companies have been trying to develop wave energy with no success, that like there were very high profile failures, not of technologies of our kind were onshore, nearshore, but most of the companies went offshore, you know, many, many kilometers into the sea. And then uh, like there was one called Pelamis that broke down after I think, if I'm not wrong, three days of operation on the coastline of Portugal. And it cost hundreds of millions in development. So in three days, total loss to the system, like that's not a good thing. Insurance companies were reluctant to insure it because it was breaking down and it was so, super expensive. If you want to install something in the middle of the ocean, you need ships and divers and underwater mooring and cables and environmentalists, which were supposed to be the greatest proponents and supporters of wave energy, were actually objecting offshore wave energy because it created a new presence on the ocean floor, which disturbed the marine environment. So kind of like for a very long period of time, there were all these factors against wave energy. So when you're entering such a field, you're not entering like, okay, it's a great new idea. Let's listen what you have to say, like 50-50 chances that I will like it. You're coming at like kind of minus 10, right? Like we heard all these big bad things about wave energy. Now you explain to us why we should even listen to you. So I think like the, the hardships were more like external rather than uh, in technology development. Also the fact that because there were so many high profile failures in the offshore industry, many of the government did not like bother, or did not think that it's the right time to set policies and set like legal frameworks and infrastructures for wave energy. So now we're excited to build, we want to build, right? Many ports are contacting us because we already have a working power station. And they're saying like, we want the same as Gibraltar. And then we say, okay, great. So how do we build it, right? And then they say, we don't know. And they start doing the legislation, you know? So it takes them longer to make the legislation than for us to build. So the regulation and the technology readiness is not in the same level. So I think really the hardships right now are from external, not so much internally. Is there regulation that says you can't use wave energy or is more enabling? And is that the biggest blocker to wave energy kind of meeting this like potential that exists outside in the world? There's definitely no regulation saying you cannot use wave energy. Obviously, most countries in the world and most coastal municipalities, they would like to use wave energy because it enables them to achieve renewable energy variety. It enables them to stabilize other renewable energy sources that they're using, like solar energy that is only available during the day, then wave energy can produce energy in the night and reach stability. So everybody are super supportive. It's just because they saw so many complicated uh, offshore technologies that you know didn't work out that the governments or the municipalities, they didn't think it's the right time to start setting policies. So they're excited, they want to do it, but because it's very bureaucratic organization, it takes them time. And time, time is expensive, you know? It's time that we're like negotiating the terms of the policy or, or trying to assist the government instead of actually constructing. After the break, Ina and I get into what she believes needs to change in order to scale the wave power technology. 
We also discuss her personal climate journey and the things she does to help EcoWave Power develop a climate-friendly ethos. The future of wave power or wave energy, right? The world needs to get to net zero emissions. In order to do that, we need to get to zero carbon 24-7 energy. What part in terms of maybe like 100 years from now, how much of that 24-7, uh, 24/7 zero carbon power will be generated by waves? In how many years? Sorry? 50, 100. Ah, okay. So listen, again, I can only say what the forecasts are saying because like, I'm, not, I'm not a fortune teller and it really depends also on the policies and the strategies that the governments will adopt. But uh, basically, according to the World Energy Council, as I said, the forecast is that wave energy is able to produce on its own with no other renewable energy sources, twice the amount of electricity than the world produces now. I saw another study that is saying that by 2030 or 2050, I don't remember the exact number, uh, that it will produce 10% of all Europe's electricity needs. So like each study is kind of, you know, some are more pessimistic, some are more optimistic, but whether it's 10% of Europe's needs or, or 100% of the world needs, anyway, like it's showing us that it's definitely a resource that is, is worth our attention. So let's jump into EcoWave Power itself. How does a... Swedish headquartered company based in Israel have a power purchase agreement in Gibraltar to produce wave energy. So the company was established originally in Israel. That's why I sit right now and I'm talking to you from Tel Aviv, Israel. It's an Israeli company. It's an Israeli technology. Uh, in 2019, when we decided to take the company public, uh, we looked at Nasdaq Stockholm because we thought it would be an amazing stepping stone to Nasdaq US, you know, because of the Nasdaq brand. And we weren't big enough for Nasdaq US, so we decided to do a stepping stone on the way to, to grow the company a little bit. In order, to, in order to list, we had to do a procedure that is called share swap, when you basically open a Swedish company that holds 100% of the Israeli company's shares. So that's how we became basically, you know, Swedish company in terms of uh, our headquarters. Then how did we get to Gibraltar, I guess, is... Uh, Listen, Gibraltar is very similar condition to Israel. Gibraltar does not have the best relationship with its neighboring country, with Spain. There are some like land disagreements there. So Spain does not give Gibraltar any electricity. And uh, given that, uh, Gibraltar has to produce its own electricity. And most of its electricity is produced by diesel. And diesel, all of us know, it's, it's, it can be dangerous. You know, it's polluting and it's very, very expensive. Now, Gibraltar is also not a very large territory in terms of the land space. So they cannot really put huge solar farms on the land, like, you know, only on the rooftops. So the biggest resource that they actually have is, you know, the water. Uh, it does not occupy any prime real estate, any expensive location. We did it on a jetty from Second World War, which was kind of neglected. and nobody used it. So we turned something that wasn't used for anything into a source of clean electricity. So that's how kind of the collaboration with Gibraltar happened. So we're, we're a little bit uh, everywhere, but it always makes sense. <laughs> how did you know that Gibraltar needed wave energy? Did you like know someone from there? Did like How did you get connected to them in the first place? So uh, we had a, through a person that we knew, like uh, a person that we knew updated us that Gibraltar is mostly using diesel energy which of course makes it a very strong business case, same like islands, for example, a lot of islands in the world, again, are not connected to the mainland, are using diesel energy. 
So any type of like a microgrid place like this would be very compatible for echo-wave power since we can take down the pollution level and produce clean electricity. Uh, so we went there and presented the, our solution to the government and the, the government really liked it, especially again, the fact that there was no risk for the government, right? There was no financial risk because we, we did the investment together with the European Regional Development Fund, uh, which took a certain percentage of the investment. Uh, we took a site that wasn't used for anything and we renovated it and turned it into a site for clean electricity. Like we're hosting visits, so we're making something that is very close to the community. We're hosting schools. And we're hosting uh, a representative from the European Union and investors and like just engineering companies that are coming. Because it's super cool to visit inside the wave energy power station. Remember that, as I said, like initially all the attempts were made in the offshore. It's in the middle of the ocean and all the equipment is inside the floater. So you can really visit it and see the energy being produced like in real time. In our case, you can walk into the power station and really see like how the floaters are moving and turning the generators. Like it's super cool. Most of the people they saw solar farms, they saw wind farms, they even took pictures. But wave energy, not really, right? So like I think also the connection to the community and to the educational system of the location are very strong in our case. Is the technology in terms of like the adoption path? Is it going to start kind of in these more rural, disconnected regions? Or are we going to jump straight to like right outside Tel Aviv or right outside New York City and Manhattan? We're going to see floaters. Listen, we are willing to come wherever they want us, right? Our goal is to commercialize wave energy and to be at any location in the world that is suitable for the production of electricity from sea waves. The good thing that, again, as opposed to other renewable energy sources, for example, wind, wind you can only do very far from population density centers, right? Because it's making some noise of turbine and like, it's, it's high and it can ruin the view. So you put it usually quite far. It, it's a great technology, but it's usually far. And with wave energy, look, we're doing now the project in the port of Jaffa. It's the oldest port in, the, in history, right? It appears in the Bible, in the story of Jonah and the whale. And it's super touristic port. Now they're renovating it uh, and making like a container market, a container city, and making it like kind of an artsy port, you know, like a lot of art uh, dealerships and, art, and young artists are... Uh, opening offices and like centers there. So, and they're putting it right in the most touristic place because one, it's not built for the height. So it doesn't really ruin any of the natural scenery. And two, like really like, I hope you come to one of our power station one day, but like, it's super cool. Like people, when they see, they don't get upset or like, ah, oh, why did you put it there? She's blocking my view. No, like it looks like small little boats that are floating on the external side of the breakwater. And especially if you get to visit inside and see how the whole process of the energy production happens, like people get excited, you know? So we're even thinking now to make a competition between young artists to draw, you know, all our equipment is like in a container outside of the water, right? The conversion unit. So we're talking to a number of like some known artists, some are less known artists in Israel to come and draw something really, really cool to make it like very also Instagrammable, very educational, like to show that we're really like this type of power station can be a part of the city, a part of the community. It's not something that needs to be hidden. 
First of all, I would love to come visit one of the power transfer stations whenever uh, whenever I can. Second of all, um, I was reading specifically about, not necessarily as part of the research for Ecowave Power, but about um, wind turbines in Cape Cod and the amount of pushback they got from this, like ironically, very liberal left-leaning in the US community, but they didn't want to like block the power. And so like 100% aligned in terms of like the, the fact that there's no view blockage is amazing. I'm curious, power purchase agreements, how does that play into the adoption of technology? And maybe for someone who's never heard of a power purchase agreement or a PPA, can you explain a little bit about it? Yeah, so a power purchase agreement is basically an agreement entered with a, an energy ministry or with an electrical company or with any type of company. It's basically an agreement where a, a customer commits, if, if, whether it's a governmental or a private customer, commits to buying X amount of uh, installed capacity or X amount of electricity from the producer, if it's solar, if it's wind, if it's wave, if it's any other type of producers, they're committed to buy it at a, at a certain feeding tariff, at a certain price per kilowatt hour for a certain period of time. It can be 15 to 25 years. Like from my experience, I saw like agreements that are ending between 15 to 25 years. And then, so how does that play in terms of like EcoWave Power's adoption? So EcoWave Power is a preferred, let's call it business case, a preferred like a business scenario is uh, not to sell our equipment, not to do turnkey projects. We're basically interested in constructing the power station ourselves with our own investment or sometimes co-investment for partners and then making our revenues from selling the electricity to the grid. So basically, we believe that we can profit for much longer time and profit much higher profitability from selling the electricity and other equipment. So our lifespan, the expected lifespan of our systems is 25 years. So imagine that you build the building and you rent in apartments for 25 years instead of selling the building. So that's kind of our you know, preferred uh, business case. So the PPA is the actual, the actual contract that guarantees our revenues from the power stations. It's like a lease for someone who rents, but for like 25 years. It's not a lease, it's a commitment to buy the electricity. Okay. If, uh, if you could change one person's mind or one country's mind about wave energy, who would it be? Listen, I think there's many people that need to change their mind because uh, the world kind of divides to the scientists that are saying, uh, wow, if we go one degree or two more degrees up, like we'll have a lot of extinct species and we will have this problem and major problems. And there are also a lot of scientists that kind of pushing the world the other way around and are saying, ah, it's a bluff. There's no such thing as climate change. There's no such thing of like heating too much. Like nothing is true. So I would like to have like a meeting with the, with the deniers of climate change and try to change their mind and show them, look like all these things have happened. Like how can we keep denying it? How can we feel comfortable with ourselves knowing that this is, of course, nothing very horrible will happen during our lifetime, right? And I think that's what kind of people, keeping people, I hope, but that's what kind of keeping people like relaxed about it. But I don't really feel comfortable living like a dirty or not so good world to our next generation. Like, I think all of us would prefer to know that our next generation on earth are safe. How would you, um, how would you change their mind? Listen, I will do my best. <laughs> 
with a lot of like we discussed passion and persistence can achieve everything so with a lot of passion and i would keep speaking until they give up <laughs> i think you you should have a podcast where you just go interview these people and then convince them that i would listen to that that would be super yeah. interesting earlier on you mentioned that you have like 300 megawatts of potential projects to do what is blocking those projects what do you need to help go faster in terms of either technology regulation people money all the above okay. First thing is what we discussed before is, of course, regulation policies and so on. Because as I said, sometimes it takes us longer to get policies and regulation in place than it takes us to build. Uh, a second thing that I would like to see, in know I'll say three things even. A second thing that I would like to see is uh, more, there's a lot of grants and a lot of funding right now being available for ocean energy, wave energy specifically, and different renewable energy sources. Uh, sources. But because wave energy is such a new, new source of renewable energy, most of the grants are kind of R&D grants. It's not to actually go and construct something for a long period of time that will be working and it will actually show a commercial ability. That's something that I would like to see that is changing, right? That like you said, that different organizations that are providing funding to new technologies will not only provide for test sites and pilots, but actually say, you know what? We're making a competition for a commercially viable. You know, it will move the whole industry forward and it will create an industry. Maybe all, all our competitors will also say, wow, okay, it's a great chance for us to, you know, instead of like being stuck in the wave pool or R&D ourselves to death, maybe we would actually go and try to build something commercially viable. So I think this will push the industry farther. And the third thing is, again, because wave energy is such a new type of renewable energy, right now, similar to wave and solar 20 and 30 years ago, that financing is not available for it. So right now, our way to fund new installations is through equity financing. And equity is the most expensive type of financing. So I would really like to see banks starting to collaborate with wave energy and giving that financing. I'd love to talk about you a little bit and kind of like your, your climate journey. Um, first of all, thank you so much. Like I've had such a great time. For you, since founding, at this point, it's like a climate change or climate-focused company, right? I think it would fall into climate tech. Is there anything that you've done differently in your personal life outside of EcoWave Power that you've changed since the, the narrative of climate change has kind of become more broad? I sold my car. So I Congratulations. Can use the car right now. Uh, yeah, like two years ago, 2019, and I, I never bought one ever since. So uh, I really think that when you live in a city like Tel Aviv, which is already very, you know, has a great population density and too many vehicles on the roads, I really don't think that people, like most households in Israel have to park. That's like kind of unnecessary uh, carbon emission. Um, I don't cook, so I usually don't eat at home. So I don't have any recycling tips to give you, but whoever does it, like, it's great. But yeah, I think uh, really the, the car. also like a, a bit awareness, like even in the office, like when we're buying straws, so we buy like recyc recyclable straws for the office. Uh, we're trying to buy like paper that is uh, recycled. Like we're trying to use more, uh, again, because you don't want to be kind of a hypocrite. You don't want to be preaching like against climate change and developing the technology, but not, not doing anything yourself. And like a lot of the employees in my company, and I find it really inspirational. Like Matthias is a part of our business development team. He stopped eating meat because he decided that uh, and read a lot that it has negative, uh, you know, 
consequences also on the world. So you just stop eating meat, you know, and uh, and it don't mean that that's the reason. So I'm seeing people that are taking more and more like uh, inspiring actions uh, due to the fact that they're being inspired by the direction of the company, and that's always really cool. That's amazing. Um, in terms of sustainability superheroes, is there any companies or people that come to mind when you think about that phrase? Sustainability superheroes? Uh, I think definitely Al Gore, because he's been preaching against climate change like for a very, very long time. So I think he kind of... Um, Who did you say? I'm sorry, I missed that. Al Gore. Oh, Al Gore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Like he's really like, you know, putting it high on the agenda long before it became popular. Uh, people like Elon Musk, that he'd been the solar city and like trying to develop or developing like uh, accumulators, which are supposed to make uh, renewable energy even more reliable. There's a lot of people that are really right now that are like even um, celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio, that is talking all the time about sustainability and environmental impact. So I think there's really a lot of people that are trying to to do good things for the environment right now and I really find it inspirational and I think that, and hope that more and more people will join. Totally. And Robert Downey Jr. has his own uh, clean tech venture capital firm. So lots of celebrities are getting into it and into like unique ways that aren't actually a traditional pathway. Is there any book or podcast or article that helped shape your thinking in terms of climate change? Um, there is a podcast, it's called, the, I don't remember exactly the name, I think it's Mothers, Mothers of Nature, Mothers of, I don't remember, it's the ex-president of Ireland, she has a podcast where she's uh, interviewing women that are doing good things for the world, I don't remember, Mothers of what, I don't remember, but her name is Mary, and she used to be the president of Ireland, but maybe we can... I can find it for you later. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. That's so interesting because I'm also, I'm reading a book called... I think Mothers of Invention, if I'm not wrong. We'll look it up right now. Um, yes. It's interesting because I'm reading a book called The Ministry of the Future. And like one of the main characters is a woman named Mary from the um, from Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Um, so while we're looking this up, you know, because wave energy is so integral to your life, do you surf? No, I, I don't do any type of uh, marine sport, unfortunately. Uh, I'm, I'm a little afraid even of deep water. If I cannot stand there, I'm a bit like of a control kind of person. If I cannot stand, I don't go there. So no, I don't. I've, I've taken one surfing lesson in my life. And like the first thing they said is like, you have to harness the power of the wave. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a wave. And so I thought, oh, for sure. Do you, do you swim? Yeah, I swim. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, I have, I have just a few more questions for you. Um, one, did you find the podcast name? Yeah. Mothers of Invention. I just Googled it in the same time. Uh, and it's, uh, it's by Mary Robinson. We'll make sure to drop that on the show notes for people who are listening. Um, so one question I have is, are you hiring? And then either way, what do you say to people who are interested in working at EcoWave Power? So yes, we're hiring. Uh, definitely now, especially when we did our uplisting to NASDAQ US, we're definitely looking uh, to find more passionate uh, team members that can help us drive the company to the next level and help us do some good things for the world. And uh, what am I looking? Listen, 
because I opened the company when I was 24 years old, I think I have the advantage of not judging according to regular standards, right? Because like, let's say some positions I heard from some of my employees that some positions that they tried out before, you know, they were looking people at a certain age, like they were thinking, okay, if somebody is 21 or 24, or 25, is probably not capable to, to do a senior position. It's probably is missing the experience or missing something. And again, because I opened the company when I was 24, I can be hypocrite and claim the same thing. So I'm very, very open to different type of people. Like I don't really care what people, what education people have, uh, unless it's necessary, like engineering. Like unfortunately you cannot do the calculation if you're not an engineer, but like to many of the positions in my company, I don't care what the background, what the education, like I really look at the passion. If the if the person believes in our journey, if the person can, really believes that if he can become a significant part and be a significant contributor, you know, for himself, for us, for everybody's, uh, you know, well-being. So I really try to get to know the person and see how he would incorporate in our very special environment. Thank you so much. I had a great time. How should people get in touch with you or EcoWave Power? So they can get in touch with us through our, uh, from, through our website. So it's ecowavepower.com. And uh, you have the, the contact us button. That, uh, as soon as they will send an email, it will go to the right department. And uh, we will be able to address all their questions. Amazing. Thanks for joining the show, Ina. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Ina for joining us today. You can connect with her and the EcoWave Power team by checking out their website and going to the Contact Us page. Their website is ecowavepower.com. It's eco, E-C-O, wave, W-A-V-E, power, P-O-W-E-R.com. We linked it in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the Net Zero Life team via all of our socials by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the netzerolife.com works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice. This episode was produced by Tani Levitt. The original music was composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. Hold up. 